Welcome, First Friends Church family. We are so glad to have you tuning in because here at First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving Him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. One of the best ways to strengthen our faith is by diving into the Word of God together during our Sunday gathering. So if you don't have a church family, we would love to have you join us. All there is to know as you plan your visit can be found at firstfriends.org. Now let's go to our lead pastor, Nathaniel, with this week's message. Last week, we began a four-part series on the story of the prophet Jonah. The theme of this series is you can't block God. You can't block His will, and you can't block His mercy either. In chapter 1, we heard God's Word come to Jonah, commanding him to go preach against the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and Jonah ran in the opposite direction. He did everything he could to flee from God's presence and will. Let's get the map up there again so we can see just the opposite direction. Uh, Jonah was in Jerusalem or that area, Gath-Hefer. Nineveh is that way. He goes down to Joppa, which is this way, and then goes as far away as he possibly can or heads toward Tarshish, the edge of the known world at the time. And yes, this is still a map for those of you who were concerned last week. God pursues Jonah, though, with a strong wind and a powerful storm. But even then, Jonah does not repent and does not submit. He forces the sailors to throw him overboard in an attempt to make them culpable for his death, and at the same time to foil God's attempt to send him to Nineveh. And as we saw last week, the chapter ends with the sailors, who were pagans, worshiping and sacrificing to the true God of heaven and earth, while Jonah, the prophet, refuses to pray, and he sinks into the depths of the sea, where God provided a fish that swallowed Jonah whole, actually saving his life. Today, we're going to hear Jonah pray from inside that fish. And though the prayer, at first glance, sounds heartfelt, beautiful, and worshipful. It is poetic and includes literary structure. We're going to discover that it leaves out the one non-negotiable essential element. If you don't have a hard copy Bible with you this morning and you'd like to borrow one so you can follow along this service, the ushers are coming back down the aisles now with some copies. If you just raise your hand, they'll get you one. If you do not own one, then please accept this as a gift from us. There's no need for you to return it at the end of the service. Finding the, the account of Jonah is difficult. It's only two pages. So if you start by leafing through the Bible, it's going to take you a long time to find it. And I would encourage you, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible as a book, just go to the table of contents, look for Jonah, turn to that page. And I'll be reading chapter 2 of this account, which is the account of Jonah's prayer. Now remember, he's inside the fish at this point, and this is what happens. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. 
The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, and the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, in examining this text, I want to comment on six aspects of Jonah's prayer. The timeline, the focus, the attitude, the hypocrisy, the gratitude, and finally, the glaring omission. So we begin with the timeline. And when I say timeline, I'm referring to the, the timing of the sequence of what Jonah says. Because he's still in the belly of the fish, but he's already talking about deliverance. And he's already celebrating his salvation. Verse 6 says, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. But he's still in the pit. He's still in the fish. He's still in the deep. So this apparent confusion of the timeline shows us that Jonah does not view the fish as judgment or punishment. And sometimes, um, particularly as children, when we've heard this story, maybe we've understood that, that the fish was partially punishment. It had to have been a fairly unpleasant experience in there, I would expect. But Jonah understands that the fish is God's deliverance. It's God's salvation. In the natural course of things, Jonah would have drowned, but after all the confusion of the storm, the waves, the wind, when he kind of comes to himself inside the fish and realizes, I'm still alive, he knows that only God could have saved him. He forced the sailors to throw him into the storm as an act of defiance, yet still God has chosen to, set, to rescue him. Now, the second aspect that I want to comment on is the focus. Now, I read this prayer in a particular way to begin. Now, I'm going to read it again. I'm going to emphasize some different words, and I'm going to read it more in keeping with the way I believe it was prayed. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. <laughs> but you, Lord my God, you brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. <laughs> Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. 
Jonah's praying to the Lord. However, he uses the first-person personal pronouns, so I, me, my, 25 times. He addresses the Lord only 14 times. Now, I know this is a superficial analysis, but note the self-focus and the self-emphasis. We are all by nature selfish and self-focused. Our attention is on ourselves and what we feel, what we need, what we want, and how to get it. But from the beginning of chapter 1, God has been calling Jonah to turn outward, to minimize his attention to self and instead to submit to the will of God and to turn his focus outward in compassion toward the 120,000 people who populated Nineveh. God is always calling each of us out of ourselves and into himself and his perspective. And even after all he's gone through, Jonah's still gazing inward. He's focused primarily on his experience. And he's refusing to lift his gaze up and out of himself. And I think we'll we'll see this even more clearly as we work through these other aspects of his prayer. We all have that self-focus. My son Ethan, I think, was three or four years old. We were in the car going somewhere. I was driving. Julie was in the passenger seat in the front. And Julie was talking, and all of a sudden, Ethan just interrupted her and just started talking. Just, and I said, Ethan, mom's talking. And he said, I'm talking too. <laughs> I mean, just, I, I didn't teach him that. You know, Julie didn't teach him to be self-focused and to say, you know, what I'm doing, what I'm saying, what I'm feeling matters um, far beyond what anybody else might be saying, thinking, or feeling. Um, Self, that's what's important. This is Jonah's perspective. (laughs) God, you might be doing something. Guess what? I'm doing something too. And this brings us to examine the attitude that Jonah is projecting in this prayer. Following on the heel of his self-focused, there's a two-prong attitude. Toward God, Jonah directs blame. Toward himself... What we actually hear is vindication. Verse 3, Jonah says, You hurled me into the depths. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Now, just a minute. Did God throw Jonah into the ocean? Do we have any record of God saying to Jonah, tell the sailors to throw you overboard? Or even telling Jonah, jump overboard yourself, and that's going to save the sailors? Remember, Jonah refuses to pray in chapter 1. God was not the one who told him to go overboard. This was Jonah's choice. We talked about this extensively last week. Yet now, he's blaming God for his circumstances. So I'm overboard. I'm in the depths of the sea. I'm now inside this fish. You hurled me into the depths. You threw me into the waves, God, and I sank down lower and lower and lower, becoming more and more hopeless. That's your fault. I think we often blame God for suffering, for pain, or for disappointment. And, and to be clear, not, not all pain, not all suffering, not all hurt comes as a direct result of our sin or our actions. That's true. But at the same time, we are really resistant to recognizing the role that we may have played through our own sin, through our own rebellion, in the circumstances in which we live. And conversely, 
we begin to understand the fact that since the fish saved him, that gives Jonah a sense of vindication, right? In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. But you brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. I remembered you? Shouldn't that have been, when my life was ebbing away, you remembered me? When Jonah realizes that he's alive inside the fish, that he's been saved from drowning, it's as though he thinks God has finally come to his senses. God was demanding all these ridiculous things of me. God wanted me to go to the capital of the Assyrian Empire all by myself and preach against them? That was stupid. That was silly. That was ridiculous. Finally, God realizes that I was right. Because if God hadn't, quote, repented of his attitude toward me, why would God have saved my life? Wouldn't he just let me die? I think verse 4 in particular reveals this attitude of vindication. I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. You tried, God, but you've recognized your error. It's a statement of condescension toward God. You cast me out, you threw me down, you sent me on a stupid, foolish errand, but, you know, finally, at least you've realized your mistake. And now we see the hypocrisy. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Uh, The 1984 translation edition of the NIV, as well as the the King James translate this in a way that I like the sound of better. It's not more or less accurate, but those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that would be theirs. That's an incredible statement, and it's powerful, and it's true. But what does Jonah say next? But I with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. So if Jonah had been talking about himself in making that statement about those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, that would make sense. We would see that there's been some conviction in Jonah's heart. But instead, Jonah's setting up a contrast. He sees himself as different from the people to whom God called him to go. Those who cling to worthless idols... You know, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, the sailors, those who cling to worthless idols, they turn away from God's love for them. (laughs) But I, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. There's a deep blindness and hypocrisy here. Jonah simply does not see the depth of his own idolatry, his idolatry of self his rebellion against God, his preference, this is really the root of it, his preference for the destruction of the Assyrians rather than their repentance and salvation, rather than God having the opportunity to magnify himself through his mercy and his grace on the Assyrians. Jonah prefers absolute destruction. 
The ones who actually release their idols so far in the story are the pagan sailors. They're the only ones that have turned to God with these shouts of thanksgiving. Jonah hasn't. And ultimately, spoiler alert, the Ninevites are going to do the same thing. They're going to release their idols. But Jonah continues to cling to his own self-righteousness, to his own rebellion, to his own self-determination, to his own plan and his own will. In short, he clings to his idols and his rebellion. Now, we do also have to acknowledge that Jonah does express gratitude, right? So there is gratitude here. He's thankful. Close to the end of this prayer, he says, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. And much of this prayer is spoken with thankful overtones. We, we see that, we, we hear that. But we have to ask, for what is he expressing gratitude? Is it for God's mercy? Is it for the grace of God that has reached through his rebellion and sin to rescue him even from his own hard heart? I don't think so. Jonah is grateful that God has come to his senses, that God has seen the error of his ways and chosen to rescue Jonah. And I think there's an additional reason as well. And that is that Jonah now believes that the whole Nineveh episode is over. Right? I mean, think of, think of everything I've already gone through. This has been nuts. This has been crazy. I got in that ship and then the storm and then I was in the sea and now I'm in this fish and everything. Wow, I'm sure God's forgotten about Nineveh by now. I don't have to worry about them or that or that mission or that ministry anymore. Now, of course, Jonah's going to discover very soon that that's not the case. God has not forgotten Nineveh, and he has not given up on Jonah being the one to take his message, to participate with him in his mission to the Assyrian Empire. I'm really good at waiting God out, or at least trying to. When I begin to feel like God's convicting me about something or I realize that some action or attitude in my life is not right, a lot of times I think if I, if I just ignore that voice of conscience long enough, it'll go away. If I can just, you know, push through another day or push through another week or kind of push it out of my mind or distract myself or somehow ignore the conviction of God long enough, he'll give up and relent. And I think this is a, a, where Jonah is and what's now happened. He's like, man, I, I fought God. I've pushed, I've pushed off his conviction. I rejected his will. I ran the opposite way. God has now seen the error of his ways. That conviction is gone. This whole Nineveh thing is going to be forgotten. I can go back to my normal life if I ever get out of this fish. And this finally brings us to the final point, the glaring omission. The one ingredient that we would expect to find in this prayer, that we need to find in this prayer, is not there. You know, it's great that Jonah prayed, but not, prayer, not all prayers are created equal. 
You know, simply the fact that someone prays isn't necessarily a cause for rejoicing. We don't know to whom they're praying, and we don't know what they are praying about. For the first, I don't know, 35 years of my life, give or take, I was under the impression that this prayer of Jonah's was one of repentance, that he humbled himself before God, acknowledging and repenting of his rebellion. I think that's the way that most children are taught this story, right? That um, it's the way I was, that Jonah is, is thrown into the sea because that's God's plan and God's word, and, that's, and that is kind of Jonah's repentance, an act of repentance. And then the fish, is, it saves his life, but it's also kind of part of his punishment. And then finally, he sees the light, as it were, in the very dark belly of the fish, and he prays and he repents, and everything's good. But I, I would welcome you, so this is kind of like a challenge, if you want to say it that way, for you to show me where in this prayer Jonah expresses repentance. Is there ever a hint of him saying, I was wrong, you were right? Now, Jonah clearly knows the Psalms very well, because most of this prayer is made up of quotes from different Psalms. So he uses phrases from Psalms 3, 18, 30, 31, 42, 69, and 120. So on the one hand, we can say he can't even come up with his own original content. And then he also quotes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So Jonah knows his Torah. He knows his law of Moses. And beyond that, he knows the Psalms of worship of his people. So wouldn't it have been more appropriate, perhaps, for him to pray from Psalm 51? which some of you memorized with me over Lent last year, earlier this year. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you judge and right in your verdict. Wouldn't that have been a far more appropriate psalm from which to borrow a prayer? And that's just one of many other options. And please understand, I'm not against praying Scripture, quite the opposite, but I'm in favor of praying appropriate Scripture for the moment. It's not really appropriate, right, for me to lose my temper, absolutely lose it, and scream at my sons and then pray to the Lord from Psalm 34, 11, Lord, I just, you know, I, I want you to flow through me, you know, and I, I pray this prophetically, come my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That really doesn't fit in that moment. Jonah wants God's favor. He wants God's salvation. He wants to a certain point, to be right with God, but he wants all this without acknowledging his rebellion and without repenting of his own sin. And perhaps most crucially, Jonah thinks he can continue to keep God's will from being accomplished. He can continue to block God's will, particularly as it relates to the Ninevites, by his own refusal to repent. If I don't admit that I'm wrong and that God is right, then I'm not going to have to go to Nineveh. Then no one will go to Nineveh. 
and they'll be destroyed. They'll have no warning. The one necessary ingredient to this prayer, repentance, is glaringly absent. So how do we apply this here to us? There are some obvious ways, but there's another verse still, a short phrase, that ends this chapter and brings this sort of episode of Jonah's prayer to a close. We're not certain who wrote this account down. It may have been Jonah himself. If it is, I at least give him credit for not trying to paint himself in a particularly positive light. But regardless of who wrote it, they communicate God's reaction to Jonah's prayer in an interesting way, with interesting language. Because Jonah finishes this confusing, self-centered, God-blaming prayer, and even the fish can't stomach him anymore. And the language used to describe that action of the fish vomiting Jonah onto dry land, it's not a pleasant image. It's not nice language. It's not wrapped up in this wonderful euphemistic bow. It's not intended, uh, it, it is intended rather, it's a picture of God's disgust with Jonah's attitude and his behavior. Not with Jonah as a person, but with his rebellion and his attitude. Because the fish does not deposit, spit, place, or take Jonah to dry land. He barfs him out. I've mentioned before, I think, that when I was a child, I did not like to eat. I know it's very difficult to believe. Um, I conquered that, that issue. Um, but I had a particular aversion to tuna fish. And my parents were well aware of this aversion. There were, I had many aversions, but this was perhaps my, my greatest and most powerful aversion. And in the late 70s, I think it was probably around 78, 79, we, were, we had gone on vacation to interior northern state in Brazil from where we lived. And uh, we were, there were six of us, uh, myself, three of my siblings, and my parents. We had a, it was a Chevy Opal, I guess, or the equivalent they had there. So like the two bench seats, right? So I was in the middle bench seat in the back um, between... Uh, my two older siblings, and then my little sister, Julia, sat in the front seat in the middle, you know. I don't even think we had seat belts, but that's another, that's another story. We were returning. It was like a 10-hour trip. We are doing it all in one day. You know, it's very, very hot, no air conditioning. And I asked mom, you know, what we're going to do for lunch? And she said, oh, I've made sandwiches. And I was like, oh, what kind? Tuna fish. And that was the night before I heard that, and that ruined the, the entire morning, the next day, the night. I knew that was coming. Because the other thing about my parents is we always had to eat what was prepared and what was offered to us. And we couldn't, we didn't get to serve ourselves either. And if we said we didn't like something, or if we made a face, or we sighed, or in any way expressed displeasure, we got a double helping served by one of my parents. It did not work with dessert. I tried it. But... So the point being, like, this, this, was this, this lunch of nicely warmed and aged tuna fish sitting in the back window of the car for the morning, it was coming, and also had hard-boiled eggs in it, which was another, at the time, a version of mine. 
And, um, and so I knew it was coming all morning. It was coming, it was coming. Lunchtime was coming. I was going to have to deal with it. And I, I took the first bite of that tuna fish sandwich on dry, whole wheat, because my mom was very, very concerned with nutrition. I think it was also sawdust was the primary ingredient of the bread. And I took a bite, and it was very dry, but I got almost all bread. And I was like, swallowed it. I was like, oh, oh, this isn't too bad. I took the next bite, and this was like, you know, I got the full experience. And as soon as that went down, thank you, Bill. <laughs> came back up. And I remember I'm sitting between my two older siblings, who at the time are, I think, like a senior and a sophomore in high school. So this was, you know, you know, you read on the back of the shampoo bottles, you know, do this, 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 and repeat. So four times. And finally, upon the begging and petitioning of my older siblings, my parents relented and said, okay, you don't have to eat the tuna fish sandwich today because there were four bags of throw up, you know, dotting our, the roadside on our trip. Um, I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I just, I could not stomach that tuna fish. Now, to be fair to my parents, I do have to finish the story because this, this kind of ruins the application to Jonah, but um, just to say that I, uh, my, my parents said, okay, you don't have to eat the rest now because we're going to have mercy, not on you, but on your siblings who are sitting back there with you and on the others of us in this car. But um, it was, you know, summer vacation or whatever. They said, you, you are grounded um, until you eat half of a tuna fish sandwich without throwing up. Sometimes motivation is pretty powerful. I did the next day and I was fine. I, I like tuna fish now. Um, and I got to go play with my friends. But on that day, in that car, in that temperature, I just, I could not, I just could not keep it. I wanted to. I didn't. And, and that's this image that we're given of the fish and God and Jonah. That as Jonah prays, each, each successive phrase of his prayer just gives the fish, well, gives God and from God the fish just greater and greater indigestion until when he finishes with, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. It's just, it's just over. And the fish vomits Jonah out. For those who belong to God, so for those who are daughters and sons of the Most High and who have been adopted by Him through His Son, Jesus, because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, dying in our place, paying for all this rebellion and all this sin with His life, we're constantly faced with the temptation to seek God's favor, His salvation, His love, without repenting of sin. Sometimes we try to wait out God's conviction, right? Just keep putting it off long enough so that conviction will just go away. But what this leads to is a constant friction between God and the child and a growing distance. God is still merciful. God still cares for Jonah. 
But God also still cares for Nineveh. As I said earlier, God is not disgusted with Jonah as a person, with the person that He created him to be. He's disgusted with his rebellion, his resistance, his hypocrisy, his self-righteousness, his self-focus, in short, his sin. And think about in Jonah's situation how his sin literally caused him to distance himself from God. Sometimes we might think of like our sin distances God from us. It's probably more accurate to say it distances us from God because God isn't the one moving. We are. In fact, God is the one who pursues. God is the one who comes after. God comes after Jonah, and we're going to see in the next two chapters, God continues to come after Jonah, not to punish him, but to try to restore him, to try to bring him back. And Jonah is going to continue to fight that. He's going to continue to fight against repentance. He's going to continue to fight against God's will. He's going to continue to fight against God's heart for his enemies, for Jonah's enemies. And I think many of us, probably all of us, desire some level of intimacy with God, but we want it without purification and repentance. It's like those perhaps having breathing issues or lung issues, and they want answers to go to the doctor, but they at the same time refuse to, you know, stop smoking. Or those of us who may have other health issues or high blood pressure or things like that, and we don't want to deal with diets and getting slimmer and healthier, but we still expect the doctors to, you know, somehow help us out. God loves His children, and He pursues His children just as He pursued Jonah. But as long as we allow sin or rebellion or self to get between God and us, we'll never enjoy that sense of free intimacy and closeness with Him. I was, I was a pretty deceitful kid when I was young. Definitely hypocritical, hid a lot of things from my parents. And because of that, there was always a barrier between me and them. In fact, any time that my mom or dad said to me, uh, Nathaniel, I need to talk to you, it was just terror. I was like, what have they found out about? What did they discover now? You know, because I knew there were all these hidden things. And, if, and that, that's the enemy of intimacy. It's the, en- the enemy of a free and open relationship because I had that fear there because of what I had done. I didn't want to bring it to light. I didn't want to repent. I didn't want to expose it. But at the same, so anytime they said, come near, we want to talk, I was like, I'm running away. That's terrifying. Sin drives us away from God. Repentance draws us, drives us to Him. So this morning, I don't know where each of us is in our heart with the Lord. Many of you may be, may have a pure and open freedom of relationship right now with Him, and that is worth celebrating. It is worth celebrating. For others of us, we may have, there's, there's some conviction, there's some barrier, there's some way we've been waiting God out, or we've just simply been resisting, humbling ourselves and admitting that He's right. Or maybe it's an idol that we just don't want to give up. We don't want to let go of because it is, after all, fun and gives us some level of satisfaction. But God is calling us and welcoming us to just rid ourselves of those things uh, that drive us away from Him. And He's pursuing us. He's calling us back. And He's just, He's getting closer and closer. And He's just waiting for us to say, yes, Lord, I repent. Okay, you're right. 
I'm wrong, take it. And then that relationship, that intimacy is restored. So as we continue to worship and sing together, um, this is an opportunity for response. As Pastor Gabriel said earlier, um, the altars are open um, as always. And I just wanna clarify that if you come to this side of the altar, someone will join you there and pray for you and with you. So that's what you're indicating by coming to this side, that you would like someone to pray for you. If you come to this side or anywhere else, um, we'll respect your privacy, just come. And, and as we said the last couple of weeks, this space up here is open. If you simply want to come closer um, and worship in a different posture, in a different context here at the front, just come. And, and, and believe me, no one's judging anybody, so no one's going to assume, oh, they can, ooh, they've got unconfessed sin. I wonder what they're confessing. First of all, that's not our business. Second of all, let's not put those expectations on ourselves or on others. Simply, let's celebrate the freedom we have in Christ to worship him, to come before him, and to do that together with each other. Let's stand. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There, you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30 a.m., and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week.